Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to turn to a familiar book. The book of, oh my goodness, the book of Jeremiah. Could you please at least fake some enthusiasm for this continual journey through the book of Jeremiah. I want you to find the 30th chapter. Dr. Kevin Ezell, was well, such a blessing to you last week. Thank you for the freedom you extend to me to go down to our Woodruff campus and surprise them and share God's word with them. Kevin did a great job. I watched the service. He made fun of the length of my sermons, but he did compliment the quality of my sermons. He said his would not be as good, but it wouldn't be as long. He was wrong. It was every bit as good as what you're normally here, and it wasn't as long, which hurt my feelings. But don't worry, we'll stretch our legs today as we get back into the book of Jeremiah. If you are a guest of ours, and I've not had the privilege of meeting you, I'm going to be out in the concourse at the conclusion of the service. I would love to shake your hand and to meet you and perhaps your family over a year ago. We dove into the book of Jeremiah because one of the guiding convictions of Church at the Mill is that we believe that the Word of God is powerful, and we believe that the preaching event is not the end of worship and the beginning of talking. It is a continuation of the worship. We have allowed the Lord to hear from us. You have sang beautifully. I joined you this morning on the front row, and it was so powerful not only to enjoy the giftedness of the men and women on this stage, but to listen to you sing with genuine hearts and lifted hands. But now it is time for us to not allow God to hear from us, but to allow us to hear from him. And we do that through his word. And the most faithful way to experience the voice of God in our life is through his word. And the most faithful way to experience his word is through a systematic treatment of the books of the Bible, milking the text of all of its spiritual nutrients. And over a year ago, when we cracked open the book of Jeremiah, we could not have known all that we would face as a people, as a nation, as a world. But I remember sharing with you the very first sermon of the very first series in the very first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, that we've chosen this book because we need a prophetic word. And I don't know if you recall, but I gave you five characteristics of Jeremiah's life that matches our life. In Jeremiah's day, when he was called by God to prophesy, it had been a long time since Israel had experienced a revival. Additionally, the society that Jeremiah knew, the people, the worldview, the culture, seemed to be crumbling. There were people who really didn't know what to do. There were many who didn't understand the past and the heritage they had left And for many people in Jeremiah's day and likewise in our day, they're struggling. Is there any hope for our future? What used to shock us in the headlines has now become common language. It's why this prophetic book has spoken so powerfully into our lives. It's why we come to this series called Restoration. I'm excited this morning to re-enter this book, but I'm equally excited to re-enter it at perhaps the most encouraging point in the entire prophecy of Jeremiah. We began this morning this series called Restoration in Jeremiah chapter 30. The English language defines restoration this way, the action of returning something to a former owner, place, or condition. We're infatuated with restorations. No matter what you're into, there's a restoration TV show about restoring whatever it is you like. You like old muscle cars? There's restoration stories, uh, shows about that. You like to see businesses go from being broken to being saved? There's business restoration shows you can watch. You like fancy motorcycles? or you like to pick through people's junk and restore it with that distressed look, there are multiple shows about this. Back in the 1990s, most people who study pop culture say the beginning infatuation with reality TV shows started with a show called Trading Spaces, where two couples or two families would switch houses for a few days, be given a small budget, and redecorate one another's house. 
Can I just say, if you'll switch and just clean my house, you don't even have to redecorate it. But by far, the most famous restoration show is Fixer Upper. Thank you, Chip and Joanna Gaines. I live in her nightmare today. <laughs> the farmhouse look has been made extraordinarily popular by this adorable and charming couple in Central Texas who have built a dynasty off of one show called Fixer Upper. And the premise of the show is pretty simple. They find a couple who needs a house. They give them a few options. They look for old homes in old neighborhoods, perhaps the worst home in a nice neighborhood. The couple makes a decision to buy the home and then Chip and Joanna ascend on it, and they completely and totally renovate it. If you've ever done a renovation, you know that their renovation is condensed down to a picture you and I don't experience. They don't fight, yell, scream, threaten to lawyer up in the midst of it. Build a house. You'll see what I mean. There's actually a fascination with the fascination of Fixer Upper. The CEO of HGTV pointed out the irony in an article in Country Magazine. This is what Allison Page said. That's the irony of this show. In real life, these things are challenging, but the process is converted into a satisfying half hour. Page says, there's a before, during, and after in one TV show. So you basically get the happy ending very quickly. And we've all watched and been satisfied. Something, though, emerges from our fascination with seeing old things made new. That is exactly the ministry Jeremiah was called to. In fact, way back in chapter 1, when God is calling Jeremiah, this is what God says to Jeremiah. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. So God had made a decision to pluck up and to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, but then watch, to build and to plant. Now, just to remind you of where we are in the history of the nation of Israel, after generation and generation and generation of disobedience, God has decided to deliver divine judgment. He is going to allow Israel to fall. The capital city, Jerusalem, will be destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. This is affirmed scripturally, biblically, and also in extra-biblical historical accounts. This really happened. The Babylonians marched on Jerusalem and destroyed it. And even today, it is a fraction of what it once was when David and Solomon laid the foundation and built the temple. Jeremiah is called out of his people to deliver to them the news that God has been gracious, long-suffering, slow to anger, and merciful, but he is bringing divine judgment. Now, in the midst of this, we have seen some of the hardest chapters of judgment in all the Bible. God does not mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't sugarcoat the degree to which he is disappointed in the disobedience, the idolatry, the child sacrifice, the immorality, the moral decay, the overall rebellious, stiff-necked attitude of his people. And so he is going with his rod of discipline to break them and bring them back to a place where he can shape and mold them into what he intended them to be. In other words... This is the most massive restoration reality show in the history of restoration. Because unlike reality TV shows that come into our lives via a device or a smart TV, there is no fancy editing. There's no holding back. We're going to see it all. And one of the things we see in this is a pattern emerge. We see it in those TV shows we love to watch, and we see it in the story of God's restoration. First, there's a decision. I need to do something. We need to restore this. Then there's demolition. You know, demolition day is Chip Gaines' favorite day on the show. Then there's the renovation. 
And then, of course, the journey ends with the great reveal. What you have in Jeremiah chapter 30 is called by scholars the book of consolation. Chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33 are these hopeful chapters sandwiched toward the end of this book that really show us Jeremiah being lifted out of his own imprisonment spiritually and given a fresh picture of what God is going to do. The centerpiece of the book of Consolation, which is Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, 32, and 33, this book within the book, the centerpiece is in our chapter next week. It's the language of the new covenant. In fact, before we dive into chapter 30, let me show you chapter 31, verse 31 in the restoration. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. This is very important language with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He goes on to say, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. So God says, I'm doing a new thing. On that day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So God says, I'm looking at an unfaithful nation and I'm going to create a new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice the phrase, those days. I will put my law within them. See the fundamental difference? The law was on a stone. The law was revered in scrolls in a temple. But God said, no, the new covenant, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And of course, this covenant ends. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So right in the midst of this incredibly dark time of judgment, the sunbeams of God's love shines through, and all of a sudden, we see a picture of something God is doing bigger than Israel. Whenever you read biblical prophecy, it's very important to read it with the understanding that its primary application is in the moment. For example, Jeremiah really did prophesy of a real King Nebuchadnezzar with a real army who would really march on a real place called Jerusalem and really destroy it. That happened. But also, biblical prophecy almost always speaks to a bigger, broader picture. In the midst of Jeremiah's prophetic word of Israel, there is the now not yet idea, the today but eternity idea, the for now and forever idea. So Jeremiah, caught up in the spirit, is seeing a restoration that may come in a lifetime or two when people like Ezra and Nehemiah are allowed to return to Jerusalem and slowly rebuild the city to what it is today. But he's also seeing something quite bigger, quite larger that God is doing. Something like, I will write my law in their heart. They won't have to be evangelized. All of them will know me. Where is the place where every person present knows the Lord, the church, and the heaven. That's where people know the Lord. Where is the place where God works in us and not just to us? It is the presence of the Spirit of God working in our lives. It is the living Jesus in us. And the Old Testament is full of language like this telling us that those forefathers saw it coming. And chapter 30 is really the beautiful introduction to this restoration. And as we walk through this chapter briefly this morning, what you'll find is that pattern keeps rolling over. Decision, demolition, renovation, reveal. Decision, demolition, renovation, reveal. Let, let me show you what I mean. Look with me in Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book. Now, that's not the whole book of Jeremiah. That's what we're calling the book of consolation. So the next few chapters are given directly to Jeremiah, and God says, write this down in a book. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, 
Days are coming. There's some important language there. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. These are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Now, notice that he's talking about both kingdoms, Israel and Judah. The reason he's talking about both kingdoms is because the future restoration of God is about one people, not divided nations, not divided denominations, not divided people over race or ethnicity, culture, or language. In fact, the picture of heaven is one people. Yes, a diverse people, every tribe and every tongue and every language, every skin color, every culture will be represented, but they are ultimately one people. In fact, they're even metaphorically represented by one person because they're not called the brides, plural of Christ. They're called collectively, holistically, and singularly the bride of Christ. So we're seeing a glimpse of what God is going to do right here in the beginning verses. He goes on to say in verse 4, These are the words of the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, We have heard a cry of panic, a terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Just a side word there. This is a rhetorical question from an ancient man who's smarter than many modern men. No, a man cannot bear a child. And people who bear children are called women. Women. And they are to be celebrated as women. They're born as girls. They grow up to be women. God chooses their gender. And men are supposed to be men. Men can father children. Men cannot give birth to children. The Bible celebrates the masculinity of men and the femininity of women. In fact, the second decision God makes in your life is to choose your gender. The first decision is that God chooses to make you. The second decision is that he chooses your gender. This does not mean that a church and that believers should not be kind, compassionate, patient, and sensitive to people who do genuinely struggle with gender dysphoria, gender confusion. It is a real thing, and we need to run to those real people with real love, compassion, but we better give them real truth. God has given us the beauty of his glory displayed in his image as male and female, Genesis chapter 1. So the ancient world knew this. And so when the ancient world thought about a soldier, they pictured a man. They pictured a man. The ancient world had enough sense to send its men off to war and not its women. The ancient world pictured a man ready for battle. When a man is ready for battle, he is looking forward. There is a focus, a razor's edge in his eye. He is certainly dealing with fear and courage all bundled up in one. Some of you have served in our military. Others of you in our law enforcement community know that when you are in a confrontation, there is fear and courage. There is obligation and human weakness. But a man ready for battle looks like he's ready for battle. But a woman in all of her beauty, when she is in labor, does not look ready for battle. I have seen it six times. She is hurting. She is uncomfortable. Now, through the glorious gift of her womanhood, her body is used to the glory of God to bring people into this world. It is an amazing thing, and God has made women amazingly strong in order to do this. But nobody in their right mind would ever send a woman in labor into a battle. She needs people to help her, to care for her, to attend to her while she does the miraculous work that God has given her to bring life into this world. So contrast the two, a man ready for battle, a woman in labor. Things are so bad in Israel 
that God is speaking in the third person and he's saying, I look down at the soldiers, but they don't look ready to fight. They look like women in labor. They're grasping their midsection. They're pale in color. They're trembling at the knees and they are weak and in need of attention, not ready to fight. And that is the background of this language. Now, let me read it again. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic and terror, no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Don't you love it when the Bible comes alive? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. So God in the restoration journey has stepped into the house that needs to be flipped. It looks terrible. It's in complete and total distress. And look at the last phrase of verse 7. Yet he, Jacob, Jacob is a reference to God's people, he shall be saved out of it. And then watch the language roll like honey from a comb. Look at verse 8. And it shall come to pass that in those days, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, And I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, David's already dead at this point. He's not referencing little D, David. He's referencing big D, David, not David Jr., David Sr. There was one who was coming who would be the ultimate David, and upon his resurrection, There will be a people who will no longer be in bondage or chained and have no enemy in eternity. And, of course, he is talking about his people. And then look what he says in verse verse 10. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away. Just a word there. Anybody here been saved from far away? Some of you may have come to Christ in a loving Christian home as a child. I did. I praise God for that. Not ashamed of my testimony. But I'm going to tell you, some of the most grateful Christians I've ever met were the ones that got saved from far away. That they were unsavable. And God in his mercy found them and saved them. I'm so thankful I have a God who can save near, far, and here in between. The scripture goes on to say, beginning in verse 11, for I am with you to save you. I am with you to save you. Memorize that this week. I am with you to save you. When a man marries a woman or a woman marries a man, there is a vow. And in the vow, there is activity. I will serve you, protect you, love you, cherish you, and keep only unto you until death do us part. When children are dedicated to the Lord at worship services, the parents make a commitment to raise the child and nurture the child in the Lord. When you go to a job interview and you are hired, you extend your hand across the desk and you shake hands with your new employer, you enter into a contract that says, for the hours that you pay me to be here, I'm going to do what you ask me to do. I'm not here just to be here. I'm here with a purpose. God says, my purpose is I'm here to save you. I'm here to save you. And then, of course, he goes on to say in verse 11, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I have scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. So the Babylonians are winning, but God says one day they will be no more. You been to Babylon? You can't go there today, but you can go to Israel. You you met any Philistines? Good luck. You can meet a Jew. All the nations that oppose the people of God have been wiped off the face of the earth, but God's people remain. And one of the things we find in this incredible decision is that the word restore comes over and over again. 
In fact, we see it in verse 3, I will restore you. A little bit later in the chapter, verse 17, for I will restore you. Verse 18, I will restore you. And then the days are coming. That opens up the book of Consolation in chapter 30, verse 1, that behold, the days are coming, or rather verse 3, behold, the days are coming. In the book of Consolation, don't get confused, the book of Consolation is within the book of Jeremiah. It is a section of the book of Jeremiah. It is specifically chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33. It is that book that God told Jeremiah, write this down, circulate this, I want this to be known. Five times in that book, the days are coming, are used to usher in positive, good blessings and restoration. We see it in chapter 20, 31, verse 27, verse 31, verse 38, and then over in chapter 33, verse 14. The days are coming. The days are coming. The days are coming. And if in your mind, we won't go there this morning, but in your mind, if you go to Revelation, you'll see the days are coming. The days are coming, thus saith the Lord. The days are coming. Hard are the days right now. Dark are the days right now. Difficult are the days right now for the world that we live in. But the days are coming. The days are coming. The days are coming when I will restore the fortunes of the Lord. The good news about verses 1 through 11 is this. God decided to do something with our wicked state. We could stop there and break into worship. That he would look upon us and decide, I'm going to restore that. Could have walked away when Adam and Eve sinned, but he did not. Could have walked away when golden calves were built while God was revealing his Shekinah glory to Moses on Mount Sinai, but he did not. Could have walked away when everybody said, there's no way we can take the promised land. But Joshua and Caleb said, yes, we can. And he did not walk away. Could have walked away when Israel constructed idols to foreign gods and some of them were worshipped on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The ultimate blasphemy could have walked away, but he did not. When you read hard prophecy, it is tempting to struggle to view God in the light of justice and wrath. But just remember, at no point does he ever walk away. He does not walk away. Once a decision is made, though, you have the demolition. You got to know how bad it is before you can get a picture of how good it is. You ever torn up some carpet and went, that should have left that down? Mm. You ever got motivated to pull the refrigerator or oven out? of the cubby hole it fits in because you're going to clean and you're like, I'm just going to shove that back and leave it. Yeah. You ever discovered water damage that you didn't know about because you stepped on a soft spot? I one time was visiting a place and sat down to use the restroom and was at a 45-degree angle. <laughs> I said, I think you may have a water issue. Whenever you begin to pull the veneer back, when you rip the carpet up, when you pull the siding off of a house, you get a real picture as to the extent of its need for restoration. Biblically, this happens beginning in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. This takes on new meaning for us. Viruses are really never eradicated, according to my friends in the medical world. Don't we all wish there was a cure for COVID-19? There's not a cure. There's a vaccine. There's treatment. And there's the Lord's gift of our own immunities, which within a measure of health produce what I'm told are antibodies that fight the virus, which means you can contract the virus and show little to no symptoms, while your neighbor may contract the virus and in a matter of days find themselves on life support or even succumbing to the illness. We've been reminded of, in our advanced state, how fragile we really are. That is the case with sin. 
In the human world, there is no cure for sin. In fact, this is what God is saying through Jeremiah when he looked upon the plight of Israel and really a bigger picture of the condition of the heart of all people. Look what he says in verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable. Your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. Remember the analogy of Israel being an unfaithful wife? Well, that analogy was taken, of course, from the unfaithfulness of a man or a woman, but it wasn't a sexual metaphor. What God was saying was, is that just like a man or a woman who uh, disobeys God and breaks their vow and puts their trust and happiness in a lover, Israel has gone after other gods and other nations. But now that Israel's back has been broken under the weight of Nebuchadnezzar, where are all your alliances? Where's all the stuff that you thought would make you happy? Haven't you replayed that over and over in your own life? I know in my life, anytime I look for pleasure in sin, anytime I look for pleasure in the flesh, anytime I look for pleasure in disobeying the word and the will of God, for a moment it might appear to be satisfying, but it never satisfies. This is why the world that we live in is infatuated with more, more screen time, more illicit immorality, more ways to redefine what it means to be a man or a woman, more ways to redefine God's definition of a family, more ways to create more racial divides and more division among people, more, 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 and it never truly satisfies. If the world's problems could be solved in government or policy or war, and we look at the history of humanity and just measure the amount of nations and governments and policies and wars, surely we would have solved the world's problems. And this is what Jeremiah is saying. Your wound is so much deeper than any human solution can provide, which is why we see in verse 14, all your lovers have forgotten you, they care nothing for you, for I have dealt you the blow of an enemy and the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. God is almost saying, it's too late to shed tears. You chose to rebel against me, and now your wounds are incurable. This is a hopeless situation. In fact, it reminds me of what Paul says about sin in our own lives to the Ephesian believers and to the Colossian believers. He doesn't say, you know, you were kind of a bad girl in your sin. You know, you just really weren't a stand-up guy in your sin. You know, you just, I mean, in the midst of all the things that you do well, there was just a few things about your sin that turned God off. No, no, no. That's not the language. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. When you step into the presence of a dead body, there is no cure. There's no doctor in a morgue. There's no cure. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, Old Testament reference to a heart not committed to God. This is the plight of sin. John Piper says this about our sin. Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. The inability to save ourselves is total. We're not going to get better. We're not going to find hope in ourselves. This is the demolition. Demolition. You don't hope termites leave. You don't hope water damage fixes itself. You, you don't hope faulty plumbing somehow self-seals. You have to tear it out, which leads to the renovation. Watch what God does in verse 16. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. He's going to spray them termites. And all your foes, every one of them, shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore your health. Wait, wait a minute. Stop. Look at me. Did he not just say, your wounds are incurable? There is no help 
for you. What in the world is the Lord doing? He was doing something only he can do. For he is the only one who can heal that which is unhealable, cure that which is incurable, restore that which is unrestorable, redeem that which is unredeemable, save that which the world says is unsavable. So on one hand, my God paints the most hopeless, dark picture of the depth of my sin. And two verses later, he says, but I'm going to do something about it. Aren't you grateful you have a God? that said, I am going to flip this house. I will move in and restore. He goes on to say, for I will restore your health, verse 17, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. God says, first, I'm going to get rid of your enemies. Second, I'm going to heal you. Third, I'm going to replace you back to where I put you, but on a better foundation with a bigger city and more glory. I'm going to do what man cannot do. I don't know if you know much about healing incurable wounds. But it's said that even the ancient Egyptians practiced what we call skin grafting. It was used quite a bit in World War I in the introduction of chemical warfare, and then it was abandoned due to some issues. But World War II forced doctors to rediscover and reuse better methods of skin grafting. I want to show you a picture of an elderly gentleman. This is Officer Desmond O'Connell. He's in his 90s when this picture is taken. And the article that accompanied this picture was an article about being one of the last guinea pigs. It was a word that affectionately described a group of people who were primarily British soldiers, burned severely in World War II, but a doctor by the name of Sir Archibald McKendor began to experiment with some never-before procedures in facial reconstruction, skin grafting, and what has become many of the foundations for modern plastic surgery. When this gentleman, Desmond, crawled out of a crashed bomber, he was doused in gasoline by the wreckage. When his body rolled over a flame, he was completely burned from head to toe. He went through two years of surgeries, new lips, new eyelids, a new chin, a new end to his nose, new tips to his fingers. And when the doctor discovered that these men were badly disfigured and they were struggling socially, he founded the guinea pig club. They joined together. They would go out together. They formed a bond. It first began 30 or 40 soldiers, and then by the end of the war, there were 649 registered members of the guinea pig club. They called themselves that because he experimented on them in order to restore their health and their facial features. New skin saved this man's life. Wounds that were incurable had to be cut away and another person's bone, another person's skin. Blood transfusion from another person saved his life. I needed new blood. I needed new skin. I had old sin. I needed someone to be my friend, to come in, to free me from my sin, and to give me new skin. This is the gospel. This is why Jeremiah says of God when God speaks prophetically, out of them, verse 19, shall come songs of thanksgiving. Notice in verse 18 where it says, the city shall be rebuilt. Now, some people say, well, that's true. Jerusalem was rebuilt, and that is true. But, but there's also a hint of a new city, a, a new Zion. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, in talking about the forefathers of the faith, said it this way in the book of Hebrews. For he, he's talking about Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations 
whose designer and builder is God. That city doesn't exist yet. We don't have a city in the world today that God designed and built. We have cities that men designed and built under the provision and grace of God, but we don't have a city that God has designed and built yet. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past age since she considered him, God, faithful who had promised. The writer goes on to say, therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars. Isn't that an affectionate way to call Abraham old? Ladies, don't ever look at your old husband and go, you know, you, you as good as dead. As good as dead, we're born descendants as many as the stars of the heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now watch what the writer does. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They never saw the city built by God. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, Jeremiah was in a pit in prison when he wrote this. But from afar, he saw a city that God would design. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, Jeremiah said, this is not my home. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Now watch what the writer does. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, the writer says, if all Jeremiah cared about was old Jerusalem, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. A better country, therefore, as a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city, looking for a city, where we'll never die, where our friends and loved ones are waiting on the other side. Do you remember Beulah Land? Did you go to your grandmother's funeral? Do you remember Beulah Land? I'm kind of homesick for a country, one I've never seen before. A few more days and we'll be going. And then the celebration of the song goes on and on and on. And so this renovation takes on the idea that God's not gonna take some old house and just flip it by painting the veneer or changing out the shutters or even shiplap. No, 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 no. He's going to build one from the ground up, a complete and total restoration and renovation, which leads where I will close the favorite part of Fixer Upper, the reveal. Chip and Joanna looking all cute, stand on the curb with a massive, where do they print that picture? A massive, massive picture of the old house. Divided into two parts, there are four sets of wheels. They push it together. And they bring the couple out, and they're standing there. And then she says in her Texas twang, are y'all ready to see your fixer-upper? And the music is cued, and the old picture is parted, right? Old picture is parted. And the wife immediately begins to cry. And the husband's like, she's going to keep the furniture? And then the last seven minutes of the show is you walking through and looking at all the ways that Chip and Joanna took your stale, crusty house and made it something that all of us want to live in. Watch the reveal in verse 19. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. And I will multiply them they shall not be few. I will make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Now, I love this part here. I'm sorry if I get emotional. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Remember what God said to Abraham? Out of you. Remember what he said to David? Out of you. Remember what he said to Mary? Out of you, I'm going to raise one up. And he shall be prince, king of kings and lord of lords. Jeremiah in the pit of darkness says, a savior's coming to live with his people. He will be them and they will be him. And where was Jesus born? A young 
poor Jewish couple on the backside of Jerusalem in a village called Bethlehem. Verse 22. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And then it hit me. What, what is God's goal in restoration? Is it a city built four square? Is it streets of gold and pearly gates? Is it a crystal sea and walls of jasper? Recently, I read the book of Revelation in my quiet times over a period of months, and it always amazes me, the beautiful language that describes the new heaven and the new earth. And while those things are beautiful and they're given to us to display the glory of God, I think there's something even deeper. What is God's goal in restoration? I'll tell you what it is. The big reveal of God's restoration is the total healing and renewal of our relationship with him and his relationship to us. Why do people want to flip their houses? Because they love their family. What do we do with whatever we're blessed with? Say you get a job or a raise. You spend it on the people you love. What do you talk about when you die? The people you So all the stuff that we try to restore and renovate is really motivated by reconnecting and being close to and being happy with people. Where do we get that from? That's the heart of our God. He created us to know us. He said, I'm with you to save you. I want to be in a right relationship with you, and you can't make it right, so I'm going to come for you live in front of you, die for your sin, raise my son from the dead, fill you with my spirit, give you my word, and then you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So if someone stands on the curb of your life and the curtains are pulled back, do they see a big reveal or a big reveal? Do you and I reveal the greatness of God's restoration? Or do we regret missing opportunity after opportunity to recognize that though our circumstances can be dreary and dark, we have experienced, not in full, but much fuller than Jeremiah, the coming of the prince, the one who was and is to come. And he offers us full restoration. Big reveal or big regret? Choice is ours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's good. It's rich. As we come to this portion of our service, we want to open this altar up. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, would you extend to me two more minutes of respect and honor for God's word? I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And I've asked our altar team to be here today because I I believe people need to be prayed over and prayed for. You may have come into this room empty, struggling, and just the sheer reading and singing of the word of God has reminded you of the restorative work that God and God alone has done. And you are grateful and you want to come to this altar and kneel and say, Father, forgive me for my ungratefulness. Forgive me for being sideways about things that are temporary and indifferent to things that are eternal. Perhaps this morning there is an area of your life you long for restoration and you'd like to come to this altar and kneel and ask the Lord for his grace. Maybe there is an issue in your life far too deep for any preacher to articulate, but you want to come and pray. If you request prayer, we'll pray over you.
We'd love to put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you. If you'd like to just kneel in reverence alone before God, you'll be left alone to pray. Perhaps this morning you come with a full heart. Why don't you pray for someone else that needs restoration? Pray for this city. Pray for our country. Pray for hurting churches, persecuted Christians. All of us know somebody that's a fixer-upper. And we pray to the God who invented restoration. So I'm going to say amen, and we're going to stand, and we're going to sing reverently. And as we sing, you come you pray. Father, you move now as only you can, for you are the God of restoration. I pray you move and move mightily among your people. Humble our hearts. And for the dude or the gal who's sitting there right now thinking of ways not to respond, I pray you would break the yoke off their neck spiritually. And the moment the first note is sang, they find their way to this altar and deal with you. Lord, I pray you fill our prayer room up in the concourse and fill this altar up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, let's respond, and let's sing. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. You come. Child of weakness, wash and pray. Find in me Thine all in all, cause Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. My sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as Jesus to play for just a moment. Would you bow your head right where you are? After just a few moments of prayer, Jeff's going to dismiss us in prayer, but would you just deal with the Lord right where you are? Maybe you need to be seated. You're welcome to kneel if you'd like to. Just take just a moment and deal with Him.